During the early 60s, Eddie Whiteman was one of the few guides seen running across the flats of Isla Mirada, Florida. For 51 years, he was one of the best bonefish and tarpon guides of his generation, ultimately winning two of the sport's biggest tournaments, one including the Gold Cup in 1975 with Carl Navarre. On today's podcast, he speaks about fishing progression, hurricanes, and why he was known as the loner. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Eddie, thank you for, for coming on to the podcast. Um, you know, everybody knows your name in the Keys. You fished tournaments forever. And um, as they made mention to uh, some of your, you know, fellow peers, Harry Spear, he said Eddie Whiteman was one of the greats, and there were only a handful of them. Uh, you've got a lot of respect from all the guys that you used to fish against and with. That's and, kind. That's kind coming from Harry. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you were... You were a guy that did well in the tournaments. You won a bonefish term, I think, uh, the Fall Fly in 89 and the Gold Cup in 75 with Carl Navarre. But before we go there, you know, we're in the, it's June 3rd, 2022, in the middle of a tropical storm, which you're very familiar with. Um, you were born in Miami in 1941. Tell me about that transition to the Keys. But right now, since we're in the middle of a tropical storm, Tell me about uh, Donna in 1960 that wiped out a big part of Island Marauder and half of Billy Knowles' family. You want to start with Donna? Sure. Well, Donna, you know, was the second strongest storm since the 1935 storm. And at that time, my family had a house right on the beach in Island Marauder where uh, the right down about three-quarters of the way to Bud Mary's on the ocean where the, not the La Siesta, what's that motel? I can't remember. It's been so many years ago. Um, Lindbacks owned it. But anyway, we had the house right next door and it was a one-story Cypress, all Cypress house. And then my dad built some an addition to it with two bedrooms where my sister and I had the bedrooms and th those were concrete. So after the storm... My dad and mom went to Miami and escaped. I was that was after the storm. No, before the storm. Oh, before. Okay. My mother and dad they left the keys, and I went and stayed with my then fiance 
on my her father had a house on the top of the hill in plantation key colony and it was like 15 feet high on the top of that hill and it was supposedly constructed out of it was all adobe brick and it was supposed to be at those days bomb proof and so i said i don't need to go to miami i'll stay right here with them and i did and the house didn't sustain any damage at all i mean screen porches got torn off but you know, trees got toppled, but all around us, the roofs were off the old 50s, 40s, and 50s houses. And there were, you know, 40, 40, 50 foot boats sitting in the middle of US Highway 1 out in front of the Payfair. And then many of them, and there were the boats that got, the charter boats that got left in, in the slips at what's now Holiday Isle or Postcard Inn. They got thrown right over the top of the highway. And the Reef Corsair was a 55 foot. Uh, I think it was a 55-foot North Carolina wooden boat owned by uh, Hugh Brown. And it ended up halfway out to Crab Key sitting on the bottom. And another one ended up in the, you know, the little island that's, if you right across from from Postcard Inn now, there's a little island where the FWC has a, their docks. There's a little island behind that that's called, I can't remember what the name of it is, but one of the 35 or 40 foot charter boats ended up in the mangroves right square in the middle of it. So that's how high the, the water mm. was and the waves were. I heard people were found out by Flamingo. I think oh, yeah. some of Billy Knowles' family were found out there. Yeah. In 35, they were all over the back. 35 was really bad. I right. mean, but, you know, the, the construction back then was just Terrible. not anywhere near it is. And the construction today is so much better than it was in 1960. Sure. What did storm sound like? When it started to get sounded know, like a freight train it sounded like a freight train and there were supposedly gust i remember they that's when the lighthouse was manned and those guys were on the stayed in the hurricane and they said the thing was whipping around like a noodle and they were afraid it was going to collapse and some of them some of them got where they were losing their mind i mean they survived it but it was blowing. They said the anometer ripped completely. The frame ripped off the lighthouse, and it was reading 186. That's was you know. Wait, cooking. when you when you said that they were found in Flamingo, some they the were in their homes. And they were in their homes, and when the roofs roofs got torn off their houses, these people got flung into the air, and that storm took them all the way out. Towards I'm not Flamingo. sure that was Donna. I think that was 1935 when most of that was. I don't remember. There were some that were found clear back, you know, Cluett Key and all the way back in there. Right. Year, years later, they found traces of them. Right. But the 35 was the really bad that one. That was the one. Yeah. That's the one where it blew the train off the thing and and all the, the native families, you know, lost their homes. I think Richie Russell, my wife could remember when he did his talk, he said they had, I think there was 22 members. I'm trying to remember what he said. There was like 22 members of his family before the, the 35 storm. And after that, there was 18 gone. Mm. Oh, my God. Something like some crazy number like that. I don't remember exactly what he said. But. Well, we had uh, Irma come through here a couple of years ago. and uh, That was a summer squall. There was nothing to it. <laughs> That was nothing. I mean, really, it might, I tied my well, boat up in the slip and it I, rode it out just fine. I think it, I think Everglades City is the was where it really got hit terribly. But also, Little Palm Island just got devastated. It took them two years to rebuild. Well, that. there's a big difference between the Upper Keys and 
and the lower keys. The lower keys got slammed. Yeah, they I did. mean, they really got slammed. Yeah. My doc, my doctor is is Charles Troxel, and he lives on the Big Pine, and his office is clear out by the highway, and it's up about six feet, and it devastated his office. It ripped the mm-hmm. boards off of it and everything. And he said that he said that out on the ocean side of Big Pine Key, they they had. He said they had 20, 21 foot tide surges. Oh my God. So it was right up in the second stories of stilt yeah, houses. Buildings. Yeah. And it was, they were, you know, a lot of them were flattened. Yeah. They got hit really hard. It didn't happen up here. I mean, I've been through every storm since 49 here and never left. And looking around here, I don't think the winds were probably over 120 at the most. Right. Do you ever leave prior to big storms coming? or do you, Oh, yeah. Do you button down? Well, when Irma came, remember when Irma first came up through Hurricane Alley down there, they were forecasting it to be a Category 5. Right. And when they're calling for Category 5 and it's aimed right at me, I'm out of here. Right. You're smart. I, I'm out of here. Well, and this house, I built this house in 78, and I built it to be a bomb shelter. It's... It's virtually, it's not solid pour concrete, but it's close. The roof is eight inches of solid pour concrete. The roof is not going to blow off. Right. So you were born in Miami. What's when, the, when was the transition to come down to the Keys? We moved. I think we finally moved down here. We were coming down every weekend. My father was had a, a masonry stone business in Miami, and he had some real problems with his then partner. And... To the fact where the stress in his business, his doctors told him at the time that he needs he needed to get away from that situation. He needed to get out of that business, and he needs to leave it or else. So he made this. They made the decision to get out to, to dissolve the partnership, get out of Miami, and move to the Keys, where we were coming down to where my uncle lived on Lower Matacombe, and they didn't know what they were going to do. So they took their money from selling the business, and right in the middle of Alamorada, there's a building on the right, the town of Alamorada. It's American Caribbean real estate now. But they moved in there, and my dad opened up what he called a patio, patio shop, and they sold outdoor furniture and all kinds of gifts and stuff for patios. And my mother had been a career hairdresser her whole life in New York City and Miami, and so she opened, there were, you know, stores there. So she opened a, a beauty shop right next door to the patio shop. It was called the List Building. Then it was built by Peter List. And she opened a, a beauty shop, and she did very well, and she got very, you know, much in demand, and she worked on people like Mrs. Truman and people like that, that Clara Mae Downey that, used to, that started the what's now Chico Lodge. So she had some pretty famous clients, and they ended up opening five different beauty shops in the Keys, from Marathon all the way to uh, Ocean Reef Club. You never saw yourself as a hair designer. <laughs> <laughs> you say you say, but you said that that guiding and fishing found yeah. you. Well, my parents. And you were here at eight years of age. My parents you went to high school here, right? Yeah. My parents always said, you know, you need to. They tried to get me to be a hairdresser. And I said, that's never, ever going to happen. You will die with something long before you're ever going to see that. I don't want any part about it. And I said, it's just, I can't do it. I can't do it. Right. 
So he said, but there's big money in it. And my dad used to say, there's only two things if times gets really tough. Women are always, you got to have a grocery store and women are always going to have their hair done. <laughs> I said, well, and they did very well, but it wasn't cut out for me. Were you fishing in Miami? Were you passionate about fishing at a young age? No, because no, we were we lived inland, and there was the closest thing to water was a was a drainage ditch, and I didn't get into that until I got down here. And then how I got into when I was going to high school down here, like I said, we were we were we were owned the property next to La Siesta, is where it is. We owned that house right there. And every afternoon after school, if the tides were low rising, the bonefish would tail right alongside of our house. They'd be tailing right along there. So I started waiting for bonefish, much to my mother's chagrin. She used to just raise hell with me because she'd go to do the laundry and there'd be dead shrimp and crabs in my rotting in my pockets. <laughs> And I used to, I used to, when the tides were right, I would wade all the way down to Bud and Mary's and back. What yeah. were you catching them with then? Spinning rod and a crab. Yeah. Is that when you thought that I, I really love this? Did you well, get it right away? Or really. was I was like... just pretty aware that I loved to do that. And then, you know, as I got up to be an older teenager, I went to work on the charter boats because I could make some money that way. But I never really took to offshore fishing even though i know how to do it i never i always liked the flats and and then when and uh carolyn says that i didn't find fishing carolyn said that she said fishing found you and why did she say that because um you were just exposed to it i loved the fishing i loved the challenge of it and back in those days it was a challenge and it was fun i mean there was there wasn't the the dog eat dog that there is today i mean it's i wouldn't I, you couldn't make me go back to guiding today and it's not because of the fishing and i was really fortunate in that in the you know in the in the 60s 70s and 80s i got to experience there was a really heavy volume of fish still here right. and the advent of the new technologies of of you know the new flats boats and the and the graphite remember the first graphite rods i was just looking at a picture that we, we maybe you've done it too but we've taken all these boxes and boxes of slides and everything and we've done a thing called legacy box where they they put it all on digital and you get it all on a little you know right so we were looking at some the other night, trying to identify him. And there was a picture of Carl Navarre at one of the tarpon tournaments beside a big tarpon, and he had a white fiberglass Shakespeare fly rod. That's, that's, <laughs> that was the best there was. In that's those. dating it, right? Yep. And not, 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 you know, not an ugly stick. But white fiberglass. That was the best there was. At what age did you build your own skiff? I built my first skiff, or I rebuilt my first skiff. I built, there was a, when I, right after Hurricane Donna, I was going, I was, I had graduated from high school and I was going to the University of Florida and I thought I wanted to be a, an architect. But I got in one semester and then Donna came and wiped out my, my parents. We didn't have a home anymore. We wiped out the business. The business was gutted. We didn't have anything to do. So I went to work. And, you know, I went to work on the charter boats and, did surveying, pump gas, whatever it took. And all the while I was fishing and, you know, I started guiding and I got my license and Billy and I got our license in 61 after the storm. You type Billy? Knowles. Yeah. 
And we both, I mean, we grew up together. Right. And we used, we're all in the same graduating class and fought over the same girlfriends, you know, and things like that. <laughs> Back in, there was only about 10 girls in the whole town at that time. <laughs> well, so since I, Bill, well, hang on one second here. You're, you're talking about Billy here. What uh, what kind of a relationship did you have with Billy? What kind of a guy was he in your he eyes? He was a good guy. I mean, I grew up with him since grade school and then all through high school. And I was a quarterback of the football team and Billy was on the line. And, you know, and just we were buddies. And I think one of the first times I can remember going into the backcountry of any distance other than Crab Keys is that. Billy and I decided that Billy decided and invited me to go. We were going to go camping. And he said, my dad has showed me how to get back to what was called the Samphire Keys, which is right off the right-hand side of Inkey, which is like halfway back to Flamingo. And I never been back there before. And Billy, I think, had been there twice with his father. So we went back there and we went camping and we pitched a tent on there and built a big fire and we got up the next morning and it was all completely all the way around the, it was dead mosquitoes about that deep. <laughs> the mosquitoes were so bad, I don't know how we ever stayed there. But that was my first foray into the backcountry. And I knew I loved it. I loved it because it was isolated. It was quiet. People were not around. Right. You'd hardly ever see a boat back there in those days. How hard was it navigating without any sort of navigational equipment? You have a lot of shallow banks out there. You I mean, learned, how you, often do you run aground? Well, I didn't run aground because I knew how to read the water. It's one of the first things you need to learn is how to read the water. Shallow water. Yeah. And, ripples. Yeah. And back those in the early days, we didn't have any power trims. You ran aground, you ran aground. Right. And once the power trims came out and you could trim out, instead of slowing down or going back, you just floor it and trim it out and go over it. Yeah. So are you, how many of those uh, uh, motor scars are yours? None. <laughs> You're pretty conscious. <laughs> None. <laughs> no, I tell you, when I, I mean, I go back, my first boat I built, it was an old Ramsey molded hull. I don't know if you ever heard of them or not. They're like a Nova Scotia hull, but they were built in Miami in those days. And I found a wrecked one after the storm, and I rebuilt it into a, into a skiff. I still have pictures of it. And I had I'd made, in those days, the guides used to have fishing chairs, and I'd made them out of a piece of, um, you know, a deck flange and a piece of two-inch galvanized pipe, and I'd strapped a uh, lawn chair to the top of it. <laughs> Perfect. And my first woolly boat, I've still, got, I've, still got, I've still got the paperwork. I got a custom-built 18-foot woolly boat and I think the price unpainted was $600. And that was the popular boat, right? It was an all that was, wooden that boat. Was, that was the Rybovich of the skiffs. Right. Everybody tried to have them that could, could buy them. Well, before we go any farther, I want to mention the polling platform. You made mention of that before the, the podcast started. But So you were a kid. You had shrimp and crabs in your pocket, and you were waiting off these tailing bonefish. What was the progression like? to get into fly fishing, did you have friends that, you know, kind of pushed each other? Did you have a mentor? How did you, you know, how did you up the skill and say, I want to, I want to start fly fishing for these bonefish. I want to start, you know, going after permit, start doing, doing more challenges. No, I think I evolved into the fly fishing all on my own because I liked the challenge of it. And I mean, and in those days you used to do anything you could, you'd go out and catch, 
you know, you'd go backcountry fishing, you'd go spin cat. Most everybody used spinning cat. But I evolved to the fly right away to the point where halfway through my career, I did nothing but fly fishing. Was there anybody else doing fly fishing? Any other anglers? It was in its infancy. Bart Foth, the guy that I, he was one of the first serious people that I can remember that fly fished. And he so, did a little lot. What year is this? When you started fly fishing? Oh, it had to be in the, probably in the late 70s, early 80s. I know. I'm just guessing. I told you I was bad about dates. Yeah, well, no problem, because I know that um, Joe Brooks caught his first bonefish in the early 60s down here. Oh, well, Joe Brooks was a, an early pioneer. You asked right. me when did it start taking off. Right. Well, so people had been doing it previously. Yeah, just, there's some people had done it. Yeah. Um, and it's funny aside on the on that when we first went, Carl Navarre and I were the first ones to go to Homosassa, and well, at that time there was a the famous guide up there was Eustace Lockler, and we took a oh no useless what's his real name that was his name useless not useless U useless use it wasn't useless it but it sounded that way. Okay, because there's another Locklear I remember yeah. up there. Was that a relationship to Probably him? Probably one of his sons or grandsons. Right, right. So anyway, you went up there. But I went up there, and we he was the local expert, and and we started asking him about, you know, where the tarpon were, and because he they'd go out there with plug rods, and and we said, well, you know, we want to try to catch one on a fly, and he said, well, I know. Fellers tried that, but ain't nobody ever going to catch a tarpon on a fly rod. <laughs> I remember that to this day. I said, well, we'll prove you wrong. <laughs> and you've been catching a bunch of tarpon prior going up there? Were you looking for records at the time? Yeah, we went up there. We went up there looking. We had heard, Carl, through his contacts, had heard that about these huge, big amounts of tarpon and the size of some of them up there through... Uh, Lefty Cray was the Lefty Cray was the editor of the Tampin, the fishing editor of Tampin Tribune in in those really early days pre pre uh, pre Homosassa. Right, and he'd gotten and there was only two according to Lefty, nobody knew anything about him. There was two guys that fixed it, uh, Mister Lemasters Le from L and M Lures at that time, the Mirror Lure. Guy and there was a he was friends with a doctor or a dentist out of Tampa and they had fished him for years and they kept it quiet and then it got leaked out and you know the rest is history on that. So Lefty's article he wrote that kind of well, opened he, the floodgates. No, he he actually called as I remember he didn't I don't know what he wrote but he actually he and Carl were friends and he called Carl and told him he said you need to go up there and check it out. So Carl told me, I said, sure. So we strapped the boat on the back of the truck and took off. And we went up there. We, we had a little sketch of going into, you know, where Bayport is. Yep. That's where they sent us first, not not up to the fancy inn. And we put the boat in there. It was black, almost black dark in the morning. And it says uh, hazard area on this little chart. And we go, what does that mean? And so we idled out this this, tr this channel. It goes out forever because it's shallow in the Gulf. And we didn't know what, we still didn't know what the hazard until the sun came up and we could see all these great big black rocks sticking out all over the place. <laughs> if you ever hit one of those things, you would totally toast. Remote. 
totals, but that was my first thing there. But we can get back to your original. What was your first morning like there? Well, we went up there and we didn't know anything, and nobody else did it. Nobody knew anything about where they were, so we went up there, and I started guiding like I guided here. I'd, you know, I'd go to that big channel up there, and I'd pull around in that, and I'd go stake out on points and wait for them to come by, and get on edges and things like that, and see anything. It was nothing. I go like, what the hell's going on? Where are they? I said, Carl. We need to go rent an airplane, and we need to go rent an airplane right now when the tide's coming in. He said, okay. <laughs> so we drove south to this, I don't know, it was a little airport down there somewhere, and he found a, a guy with a Cessna and a pilot, and we went up and flew and flew, and we did run up and down the shoreline and didn't see anything. I said, move offshore. So we he kept doing a grid like this up and down, and all of a sudden we got you know, where they are now. You I mean, you've fished there many times. We got that far offshore, and I go like, holy shit, here they are. They're just way far offshore because the, 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 the gulf tapers out so slowly as, as opposed to here. And, there, and later on, after I had fished them along, I discovered that there was, a, there was an actual underwater sand ridge, and they would follow that that depths can, it only dropped off about a foot, but they would follow it. And what we did was I said, well, there were no GPSs in those days. I said, how, how are we gonna find this? So that's when we first started staying at the Riverside Inn. And I went back in the kitchen and I said, what do you do with your used uh, gallon jugs that you use for you know French fries and all? He says, we throw them out there in the back. I said, can I have some? He said, sure, take them. So I went and got about 10 or 12 you know, grease jugs, and I went and got some monofilament and some sinkers, and I tied lines to them. We got in the plane the next day, went out and found the fish, and started dropping jugs. And I ran straight out the next morning until I found the first jug and started pulling. <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, that's how Jim Brewer died. That's they correct. were throwing jugs out of the airplane just prior to the Gold Cup, and one of the lines got caught. No, I think it was a non-stall plane. And it got too steep in a turn, it, f it fell through the lift. That was all the speculation. I was the first one, I had to go, I was the guy, only one that would go, I went and identified them in the in the morgue. That was not any fun. I couldn't, right. nobody else would do it, so I went on it. Yeah. I was the president of the association at that time, that's how I got drafted. But you know, they'd but, been in the water for quite a while and the crabs had eaten all their eyes out. And Right. But it was interesting how a number of people were identifying locations by dropping jugs out of airplanes and, and whatnot. Well, what, what an ingenious way to do it. Well, they were it there. Worked. It worked. And you could go out in first light and you could find them because you know about where they were. Right. There were no GPSs or anything like that. I never even owned a... The whole time I guided, I never even owned a compass. <laughs> and how many years were you guiding? Fifty. Fifty-three. Well, Nikki brought up a topic earlier about a polling or yeah, polling platform. And you said when you first started polling, you used to pull off the bows and then off the cowlings of the motors. How did this platform come to be? I just got. To, I mean, we were running inline Mercury six-cylinder Mercury's in those days, and you know they were they were tall and they were narrow, and I'd stand on that most of the time. I'd put the lower unit down where I could stand on the flat top. 
and in the, but you're dragging the you know you're dragging the whole lower unit then so it's harder than I was you know I was what 35 years old then so I was pretty agile I only weighed 150 pounds and so I just one day I got the idea I said you know what if I just built like a little platform over the motor and so I did that I went to the local hardware store and I bought some three quarter rigid aluminum pipe and I, I bent up bent two legs down in a flat spot and threw a piece of plywood on top. And uh, I used that, and it worked fine. And w you showed it to Bill Curtis or something, and he said, yep. what is that, a cleaning station? Yeah, well, I broke I broke that one because it was, you know, it wasn't anything near as strong as the ones they're building today. This was homemade. And I broke that one, and I threw it behind my house, and Bill Curtis came to visit me one day, and he saw it behind the house. He says, what is that, some kind of a fish cleaning table? And I told him, no. I said, that's my... What I stand on the pole now, and I got another one on my skiff. I said, "You can see it out front," and he said, "Can I? Can I have it?" And I said, "Sure, take it. I don't care. I don't have any use for it. It's broken." So he took it to Miami, and he was working with Bill with uh, uh, Hughes Boat Company in those days. And he took it up there, and he showed it to Bob Hughes, and they saw the future in it. They Bob Hughes took it to what was, I think it was called pipe welders. I think they're still still built towers. And they built the first prototype, and, you know, you, everybody's got one now. Right. But he got the credit. Yeah, they got the credit. Well, nobody actually got the credit. Well, they say Billy, or, you know, Bill Curtis designed the first pulling Yeah, skiff. well, he designed it off the one I built. <laughs> <laughs> well, you all, there's another thing that's kind of interesting to Nick I never, and I. I never cared about notoriety. Right, you, but... You know, and I and I get that. I think that's why a lot of people respected you so much. And uh, but there's one other question here. You said that you came up with this knot, which was a figure eight, two knots can combine as a um, bimini twist. Take the double well, line you call through it a the figure, figure eight. eight. I call it a nail knot. Yes, yeah, right. Same thing. Right, and except then you have, has, except it's got one more wrap. Right, and then you have a couple, you know, half hitches in the back end of it, and a risotto nut, which is basically a, a huffenagel. Yeah, but you found that too on your own. Uh, as far you, as I know, and, do, you, do you remember and, when you and designed? I started showing it? And I, I think the first guy I showed it to was Cecil Keith, and he said, "What the hell's that?" And I said, "Well, I was I wanted two more inches. It was always hard to get the maximum, you know, to get it." uptight and I said I kept fooling with it and I just decided to tie this is what I came up with I said you could tie a figure eight if you want to call it in over the double line somewhere down the length of the double line then you slide it all the way up till it butts up against the wraps right and then you just tie half hitches and I said you gain an inch and a half two more inches of of a bite tip right so the people who don't understand what we're talking about in fly fishing IGFA fly fishing in tournaments off your fly, you have <coughs> you have up to twelve inches, including the knots, and that twelve inches could be any size of monofilament or even wire. But from, <coughs> from me. that point up, That's correct, you have your your class tippet. So we're talking about the bite tippet here. So I think uh, trying to find a knot that you're going to get your bimini twist. Uh, in the past, it was never <coughs> really me. butted up. So that's what you're doing is trying to get. All that that, that Just, you know the distance tightened up. Right, get the double get the double wrap and the knot over in to be as small as I could get it, so right. I get a longer piece of hundred pound or eighty right. pound. What other great? Wait, I I still don't understand. 
So you were trying to lengthen your bite tippet for this knot. Go over no. there and get one. No. So what it was <coughs> is originally they had like a, a bimini twist, but the double line was never butted up against, you know, that next knot that, that people used. Right? If I'm not yeah. mistaken. Nikki, go over there and get yeah. one of those flies. Yeah, pull it up. Then you can see it. Because I thought the huff and angle, uh, hold on one second. I thought the huff and angle was to combine really heavy tippet to really light tippet, and that's when the knot was was applicable. Well, well, Steve said that, that no, he was, came up with it this. It was knot. tied over the double line after the bimini twist. Not light, not 12-pound to, unless we're talking about two different things. Well, he, he was originally thinking, you know, when he was fishing with Tom Evans in Panama, they were bill fishing, and they had these big runs. And between these big runs, Steve was trying to figure out, how can I combine light tippet to heavy monofilament for billfish? And how do you connect two-pound test to, say, 100 or 80-pound test? But in order to get 100%, it was always had to go through a double uh, bimini, as far as we knew it. Well, you had to have that bimini knot. Right. But he said that's when he figured out how to combine that bimini knot uh, through and butt up up against the figure eight. Can you see that? Yes, I can. That's one of them. Oh, you've got a little uh, connection here. Well, take it off. I mean, it's just a piece of wire or something. So... Look, so here's what we're talking about, you know, in tournament fishing, world record fishing, from the eye of that hook to your class tippet, that's your world record tippet, not this. You have an option of using any size of monofilament or wire. So that's got to be within 12 inches, including the knots. So your huff and angle or the knot we're speaking now, combining a bimini twist, you know, through that nail knot or figure eight. A, you know, butting those, those two knots but together. You see That's sm- the knot we're talking you about. You see the, how small that is. Yes. In the old days, before people started using that, you know, it was hard to pull it down. And, you know, sometimes you'd have this much double line. Right. So in the past, this bimini was back here and you had the double line before it was right. connected here. What was that connection uh, here in the old days? Oh, a nail knot usually, uh, you know, Mostly, mostly nail knots. So similar, but it was just not pulled tight. Right. I got the idea to to tie it down. I mean, you could tie it when you make a double line. You got this much of it. Right. So you tie it down here where you got room to work, and then you slid it all the way up and butted it against the the bimini wraps. And then, in order to keep it there, you just, just tied some half hitches. Right. What other inventions or designs that you came up with uh, that no one had at the time? Well, I don't know. I mean. Because I kind of stayed to myself, I wasn't, I mean, people could have invented things at the same time. You just didn't know. Yeah, I just didn't know. How, how did uh, Flip Pollock... I mean, like Pollock, that gap I showed you. Right. So how did... Uh, that gap was deadly. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. So uh, Flip Pallet called you the loner. Is he the one who gave you that name? Yep. And that goes back to the CB radio days. He started calling me the loner because he could never find me because I was always... And then I come in and say, I said, hey, Flip, saw you back around Sid Key today. He said, I didn't see you. And I said, well, I knew where you were. <laughs> <laughs> and he started calling me the loner because he couldn't find me. Do you take pride in that? Yeah. You named your boat the loner. Yeah. You must have. Yeah. Named this, that big boat's named the loner, too. We yeah, sp- I mean, I'm, I was always kind of a recluse, I guess you might call me, or a loner, because... In those days, when I grew up down here, the 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 good the 
known guides at that time were you know Cecil and Jimmy and those guys and they didn't tell the new guy anything they sent you in the opposite direction I'm going to steal my dad's thunder a little bit here we were speaking to Timmy Klein on the way down and he was saying that you helped him out greatly in, especially in bonefish and tarpon um, he was saying you clued him into a certain area or certain areas and you would say when you go in here go in the afternoon when all the boats are off the water so, so no one would caught. see you yeah so you don't get caught that's probably true <laughs> i thought that was interesting and he, he he said he had that spot you and him would fish for 10 years until someone actually busted him and found him and then that's when all the yeah, boats started well, coming in tim timmy was honorable not like some of them some of them they just they would go home and they i mean they'd go back to the lorelei or someplace and, and as soon as they got into the beer the mouth started running Right. And, you know, I caution people today. I said, if you got a good place to fish, keep your mouth shut because all you're going to do is get company. And I said, they will destroy it for you. They'll destroy it because they'll beat it to death. I mean, in the old days, I could go. I had so many places because one of the things I always did in the old days is if all the guides were going to Buchanan Bank or whatever the place to be is, I went the other way. I went, if they all went to Buchanan, I was in Channel 2, I'd go the other way because I figured that whole bay out there, all the fish can't be at Channel 2 or Buchanan. Right. I said, I'm going to go out there and learn it. And Steve Huff and I have talked about this many times because we're very much alike in that we believe the only way to learn how to fish and where the fish are and what made them doing is on the push pole get on the push pole and pole for miles and do it day after day on the, all kinds of winds and all kinds of tides you know we, we agree on that you know what's in it if you take a look at the uh rolling garros right now the big tennis match taking place um in paris inside the rim of the stadium there's a big quote on that big rim the victor belongs to the most tenacious I think you could probably fall into that category. <laughs> well, I was pretty tenacious because, and I, because of my makeup, I learned where fish were that people didn't know about. And I had all these little honey holes back all over the bay that only I knew about in those days until, until they, until the advent, you know, they started running all over the place. And nowadays they, you can see one coming and click, you can see them. Right hit the GPS and you're done. Harry told me that a lot of the boats were fishing the incoming tide in the back for bonefish. But he thought, I didn't want to be around all these boats. I'd fish these spots during the falling tide. And he said, you were the one of the only, maybe two other people he ever saw back there on that falling tide. <laughs> that may be so. <laughs> I spent a lot more days there than Harry ever did. I lived at Nine Mile. And then that's, that's where that's where Charlie Causey and I caught 32 bonefish in one morning on fly and left them. Yeah. You know, Charlie Causey mentioned that in the 96 fall fly, the first day he caught, I think, 31 on nine mile. Well, it was 31, 32, something like yeah. that. Yeah. But that you didn't fish that tournament, did you, in 96? I was his guide. Well, there we go. It's the same story. I, I didn't was, realize you were his guide. I was his guide. Did yeah. you interview Charlie? Not yet. Uh, you got to give Eddie some credit, man. Well, Come on, Well, Dad. I thought he did it twice. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize. I'll tell you, he would be a good guy to do a, no. do a show on because sure. he, 
he's probably fished more permit days than Del Brown nowadays. Yeah. And he fished with all the best guys because he could afford it. Mm -hmm. And he was, he retired from Wall Street with, you know, sure. financially well off when he was barely 40. Yeah. And he, and his avocation became fly fishing. I didn't know, I, I, you know, because we were fishing, like I, I fished that tournament against you guys. And, well, and, and all of a sudden he jumped in because we caught a couple of Harry Spear and I caught a bunch of big fish that first day. We caught a 13, 12 and a 10, 12. Then you guys caught 31. But none of them were big enough. That's why we, right. we could have caught more, but because that day and, but we needed to fish over eight pounds. So we took off doing it and uh, we never did catch a big one. So we didn't, didn't win. Right. Did you have that same passion for permit and tarpon as you did for bonefish? I never really got heavy into the permit fishing. I mean, I mostly, I mostly fished tarpon and bonefish because I'd never got into going to Key West and, you know, and what it took to do it. And I liked, I thought, you know, in those days, I really liked the, the, the bonefish on fly because you had to know your stuff to catch a bonefish on the fly. Unlike tarpon. Unlike tarpon. Tarpon were mostly big, dumb slobs. You put it in front of their face and do it just right, and they eat it. Not so with the bonefish. Right. You know, it's. Uh, I think Steve has that same feeling. You know, he said, you know, permit or unfair. Tarpon, for the most part, are easy, but... The big bonefish are the most demanding yeah, fish of all. I've, you, always, you, I've always told my fly fishermen, I said, if you, I mean, they'd say, oh, yeah, I've, I've caught a lot of bonefish. Where'd you catch them? I said, and they go like, well, in Bahamas. And I go like, you know, nothing yet. When you go out and you can consistently catch some big bonefish, Alamorada bonefish downtown, then you can put your hat on. Right. What did, uh, what kind of flies were you guys using back then? For well, it was, you know, it was an evolution. Right. We started out with the, you know, like some of the deceiver type flies and the shrimp type flies, and and you know, we eventually ended up into the crab type flies, and you know, and, right, and the the toadfish flies, and those. That's where they finally. I don't know. I've been out of it for ten years. I don't know what they're using today. Right. Did you ever catch a fourteen or fifteen pounder? There he is, right over there on the wall. Fifteen six. Is that right? Fifteen six. Wow. Yeah. With whom? Uh, his name was Peter Costanzo. He was not an angler. He was a half, I mean, he was an all-day charter that came from, I don't know where, I can't remember. It's been so long ago. But we had gone, they wanted to go, but he and his wife. And we had gone all the way up the ocean side, and we'd fished all day long and hadn't seen a fish. Hadn't seen a fish. And there's supposed to be some weather coming in, and I... I I'm like Harry, I'd stay out to the last light if it, that's what it took. And I came back and I said, let's stop up here at Crossbanks on the way home. And it was getting dark. There was a squall coming. And we pulled down the bank and we saw that there was two fish tailing. And the guy threw it out there and he hooked the fish up and it ran off the flat. And I said, just let him run around out there and, and you know, and I'll get this other one for your wife. Well, we let this thing, we didn't know it was 15-6, and we just let it swim around out there. <laughs> and so we went over there, and the wife spooked out one and pushed off the bank, and I finally said, okay, see if you can get him in here. And he pulled him up alongside the, the, the boat, and I go like, 
holy cow, is that a tuna or a football or what is it? It thing was just like that big around. And, you know, we ran it in and went through all things and waited 15-6. As a big, passionate bone fisherman, it must have broke your heart when all these fish died in that 2010 freeze. Oh, it was terrible, yeah. And then, I would I mean, in my day, I never thought bonefish would disappear. Right. And they virtually did. They did. You know, there's a few little ones coming back, but compared to what it was in the in my day, I mean, there were bonefish everywhere. Not that you could go on any flat and catch a bonefish, but if you knew what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And but, you, you, you consider yourself more of a bone fisherman than a tarpon fisherman, correct? Yeah, yeah. but I could do either. Yeah. And I could to, do either equally as well because, you know, one of the reasons I quit is because it got so congested out there and it got to be so dog-eat-dog. And when I, in my earlier days, I didn't fish spots. I learned how the fish got to those spots, where they went after they left, and how they got to that spot. I tracked, I knew where they would go. So in the old days before it got so crowded, I could literally stay in tarpon all day long. Just by whatever the tide was, and just move, and here they were. Right. But that vanished with the, you know, when you had to get a ticket and a place to park a month ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, right. That didn't get to be any fun. Yeah. Then um, it got to be in, you know, every time it was a screaming match and mm-hmm. you know, people having virtual fist fights on the water. That's crazy. That's what was the worst? What was the worst screaming match you got into? I don't remember that one. Was yeah, it? Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> no, I have selective memory when it comes to that. I don't want to. I don't like naming. Right. Naming names. Right. It doesn't matter. They got, it got to be a daily occurrence. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Wow. It still is today. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, at least with the guys I talk to. How how much did it mean to you to win these big tournaments? You won the fall fly, I think it was in 89. Well, it meant a you, lot in those days. And then you won, it, you won the gold cup. Because it helped, it helped build my career and right. kept me booked. But, you know, the, but it had to have meant a lot to your pride, you oh, know. Yeah. Well, in those days, we most of the tournaments we started to create business. Exactly right. They, were, they weren't existing. We created them because we needed some bread on the table. So what was happening, if I'm not mistaken, everybody would come fish in May during the peak tarpon run, and then they'd, they'd leave town. So you guys started these tournaments to get the yep. guys to come back into town in June. Correct. Or, and that's how the fall bonefish, to get people here in October. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nobody here in October. Right. How much were you getting paid back then a day? Shoot. I think I started, it was probably back in the, in the, in those days, probably 300. And then by the time I quit, it was, I, I always tried to, after I got where I didn't have to worry about clients, I always tried to be a hundred dollars more than everybody else. And people will say, well, how come, you know, I can get so-and-so for a hundred dollars less. I say, he's worth it. You ought to go there. <laughs> It's a great way to put it. Yeah, I said, I don't want to be, I said, because I think I'm better than, I never said that. But but you knew. I knew that. You worked harder. Yeah. That's what Harry said. He said there were only a, a couple of you guys that worked, you know, 10, 11, 12 hour days. Yeah. And you were one of them. Yeah. When, we, when, hadn't, we hadn't learned to work smarter instead of longer. <laughs> right. Um, who, was, who were the best fishermen you ever had on your skiff? Oh, I never had the privilege of fishing with you, but. You know, I went back and 
back in my day, compared to the anglers today, those guys were really very good. They were wealthy people like Carl Navarre, who was a bass fisherman, and they didn't have the skills like you guys do today. Right, I mean, but you could look at any sport and yeah. say the same. Right. But the, the top dogs back then, you know, Carl Navarre, you went to yeah. Massasa with him. Oh, were yeah. you guys record fishing up there by, the, by chance? Yeah, we were after the 200-pounder. We took Bill Curtis up there and to fish with little Carl Navarre. So a lot of people have made the statement that, like Sandy Brett did on, on the podcast with him, we didn't just go fishing. We were training. We were training to win these tournaments or training to catch these world record fish. Is that the mindset you guys had? Yeah, well, Sandy was a different level than the average rich businessman at the time. Right. You know, he was... More serious. He was serious. He was good. He, he had what it is. His brother was good, too. And Randy, I fished Randy for years. But there was a different level of communication with the fish with Sandy than Randy. Randy was an excellent caster. But Sandy could talk to the fish and make them eat. Right. I've uh, said this to Nikki and you know, a bunch of people in the last, oh, maybe last year or so, talking about tournaments. The best team is a guide that can find the fish that doesn't want to be found. And the best angler is the angler that can catch the fish that, that doesn't want to be caught. And keep his mouth shut. <laughs> Not tell anybody. So who was that angler for you? Was Carl? Carl that was, guy? Yeah, Carl. I fished Carl for years. I had numerous anglers. And did I have a favorite? I mean, I fished Randy Moret for years. Randy and I were really good friends. Randy was an excellent fisherman. Mm -hmm. He was very good. But I think... If I had to judge both of them, and I never got to fish with with his brother a whole lot, but I fished a little bit. I mean, and I think that the brother was a little tiny bit better. Yeah. Did you see a time when you had to... Don't mean this... to say, I don't want to... No, no. And, you can and... take that out of the thing, of yeah. course, I'm concerned. Did you see a point in time where all of a sudden you had to feed the fish versus just show the fish the fly? Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you remember when that was? Yeah, the fishing on the ocean side. I mean, that's... Especially when the backcountry went dead, everybody was outside, so that doubled the amount of boats and anglers, and, and the fish just got where they wouldn't bite, not using the same techniques. And went down, I mean, we kept using the same kind of splay wing flies. We just got them smaller and smaller and smaller until right. I was down to number one hooks. And then then came the, you know, the worm fly, and, that, and they will get used to that too. You know, they already are. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. You know, I think they're related to the cockroach. No matter what the man does, the cockroach has survived. <laughs> <laughs> right. So back then, tell us about the palola worm hatches. Just because two nights ago we were out down by Key West and we just collected worms. It was really cool to see them. We didn't even fish. There was a big storm coming. Did you guys get into those worm hatches back in the day? Yeah, we used to go out into them. It was fun. Just, yeah, it was, I awesome. bet it was and, unbelievable back then. It wasn't just harping. I mean, you get big mangrove snappers sucking them down and all kinds of stuff. It was a real heyday. And, you know, you, it was a hit or miss. You, you, they know more about it than we did in those days. But if you hit it right, it was it was spectacular. But did you get, did you promote it? Like a client would book you from five to eight? And I, was get, you, I was booked solid every day anyway. I didn't. But you would go out there looking for the worm hatch. Yeah. yeah. Jim Brewer and I used to go out there for fun, but. I mean, I had such a clientele. I, I was fishing. There was the years I fished 300 days a year. And I just didn't have the energy to do it all night, too. Right. 
But in the early days, I would I would fish the skip all day long, and then I would probably do four to five night tarpon live bait fish at the same time. Wow. But you know, I was 30, 35 years old then too. Sure. So. And then okay. our our whole you know, our whole money making season was four or five months total. So that had to last you for twelve months. Not like today. Right. You were speaking downstairs about this gaff you made. Um, and I think that you and Charlie Cosy were a couple of the guys that really were influential in getting the Gold Cup to be a no-kill tournament, and that's why you stopped fishing the Gold Cup, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Tell me about those, that transition. Well, that's hard to say. I just got where, you know, I didn't like... I had, and I, I killed a lot of fish, don't get me wrong. I've gapped a lot of tarpon in my time. But I just got to the point where I go, it's just it's just wrong to kill these magnificent fish. And then every day hang them on a, on a rack and then tow them out as garbage. You took a magnificent creature like a, the Silver King and turned it into a piece of garbage. And I just said, you know, I can't be part of that anymore. How did you guys get the... Because I, I had such a clientele you, and people waiting. I didn't have to worry about filling the tarpon tournament dates. Right, anyway. But I said, I can go out, you know, I can go out and after those guys go home and fish and have a good time, and I get paid the same, probably more. <laughs> but you were still involved trying to get this to become a no-kill tournament, yeah, even and, though you had stopped fishing yeah, the tournament. Charlie Causey was very instrumental. Bert Sherb was very instrumental in it, and many others. How many years did it take to get it uh, to change? I can't. Couple, I mean, it was two, a three. I no, oh, wow. I think it took more than that because the, there were some entrenched people that fought to kill the fish. They said, I mean, some people had the idea. Well, I spend a lot of money down here, so I have a right to kill a few. Well, Where did Billy Pate stand on all this? I'm not sure. I don't. Th I think Billy was in the. You know, I think Billy would be fishing the same old tarpon tournament today. He hmm. wasn't. I don't think he was a proponent of release. Right. He probably wasn't against it either, but Right. I don't know. I was never friendly with Billy. So Billy was a I just I never who, who, I never fished with him. Who who were you tight with? You say you were a loner, but you had to have some tight buddies. Oh Billy uh you know, Billy was one. I grew up with Billy and Timmy. That's long before his brother started Robert started fishing and Jack Brothers. Earl Gentry, those people, Cecil Keith. Yeah. Never Jimmy. Jimmy, I didn't. Jimmy Albright. Jimmy Albright. What about yeah. Jim Brewer? Jim Brewer was a good friend of mine. I mean, he tied, he and I used to fish, we tied our boats up about the stern of each other at the Lorelei for many, many years, many years until he died. Until he died. Who? I, I remember, I remember driving the skip out there and seeing that plane crash that was it was just laying there like a big dead whale you know it was a it was a uh what's the guy what was the guy's name he used to, he was a clerk at worldwide and he took he just got his pilot license and he fitted it with one of those stall kits You're right and the nobody really knew because nobody was around they figured they just got they they were circling some tarpon and they pulled it in too tight of a bank and just 
Right. And Slip. I think the first time I heard about this, they threw a jug with a string and a weight on it, and it got stuck in the in the in the tail wing or whatever. But I never. Heard I don't of, think I that's. Never, I never, but nobody really knows for sure. And I, I they, they found a plane that. that was never stuck in it, so I think that that was, that was right. They just got too steep and, and fell they through were, the. And you saw. know, they had found some fish that they wouldn't have found otherwise, and they Pel were. You know where Pelican Keys are? Yeah. They were. The plane crashed about a mile and a half to two miles east of the Pelican Keys and that little basin in there. It was only in four feet of water. And I never knew there were any tarpon in there because I ran over it a million times going red fishing and backcountry fishing. Right. Did you ever, you said you flew over Homosassa dropping those jugs. Did you ever do that in Florida Bay or you was your knowledge already? I didn't need to. Right. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Florida Bay. I mean, I still look back and with no compass or dead reckoning how we could leave here in the dark and run all the way to Sandy Key and be there at dawn with no way to figure out how to get through the finger channels, but we just did. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> and in the early days, you if you got there on the low rising tide at dawn, there was rolling tarpon as far as you could see. There were thousands of them, and now they're all gone. What, what was the turtle grass looking like? Just like a thick blanket. You know, the uh, the algae blooms didn't, I mean, we didn't start seeing that. I grew up down here, there were no algae blooms. It didn't, they didn't exist. The backcountry was crystal clear everywhere you went. In the early days, they didn't start showing up till what was it, 85, 84, somewhere in there. And they started back at Rankin, and then they came this way, right. and, and they took over the bay. I remember... As, it, as it's one of its worst, I, I was going out in the back, I was going back somewhere, and I went through Twin Keys, and it was a flat, calm day. It was like 8.30 in the morning, and I headed for Rabbit across the bay, and that entire bay was solid, dead, rotting sponges and stink. And the algae bloom had killed every living thing in that bay. That was that was really sad to see, and that those things would shift around with the wind. Sure. Well, it's I mean, pretty amazing to talk to someone who's seen the heyday of yeah. Florida Keys fishing. I remember when that some of the tournaments, Charlie and I were always fished the, the bonefish tournaments together with ply bonefish. And I remember one, one year we went out and practiced the whole week and we had it dialed in where to be at what time. And the day of the tournament, the wind switched from the north and blew the algae bloom out of Rankin Bay and covered up everything that we had planned to fish. Oh, God. So we just started over from scratch. That's the, that stuff would just move around. I remember when there, were some, there were times when it would go all the way out to Tennessee Reef through Channel 5, Channel 2. When it was right, did you have a favorite spot back there? I had 100,000 favorite spots. <laughs> wherever the fish are wherever the fish were if it weren't there i knew where to go next right but you know that was a it's, million hours on the push bowl you know because i've been down here almost 35 closing you know 38 years fishing florida bay and up the coast and marquesas and the lower keys i like finding fish in certain spots you know yeah i like to find fish wherever they are but there's certain spots that i love and i remember back with harry and the fish would come down nine mile bank you know First, second, third point, and there'd be a big mullet mud out there. You got there, and those big fish are, you know, tailing through all that mud and stuff. Oh, that was fun. It was unbelievable. But I've always gravitated to the lower keys for some reason. 
lorikeets are beautiful. I liken them a lot, especially down around the contents and down in there. It's it's a lot like the Bahamas, the right. water quality. You know, it's really clear. And the color of the you bottom. In the bottom, different. and you got those big sand veins and the channels running between. It's prettier. If you like the Bahama water, it's prettier than back here. This has its own beauty, but it's right. just different. How long did it take you to actually retire from this? What was the pain level like? How did it How did it progress? And you know, at 80, what point was it that you said? I just plain wore out. I think when I got to 65, I've been doing it for 50 plus years. And I just wore out. I was tired of it. It wasn't any fun anymore. And I was getting old. And I mean... I was in, I mean, I'm still eating up with skin cancers and everything else because when I grew up in the Keys, nobody paid any attention to skin cancer. Nobody knew what it was. You just, the old timers just kind of rotted away. They didn't know what it was. I know you see the old photographs of the gold cup and everybody's got these big raccoon eyes and their faces are just burned. Yep. And I grew up in, on Lower Matacumbi and, and, you know, all your all the kids' parents that used to tell us to go out and get as black as you could so you wouldn't get sunburned. <laughs> and we lived in cut-off jeans and no shirt and no shoes. And then I went to guiding, and I started guiding the same way. I never wore a shirt. <laughs> How many boats were got there when you first started? Not very many. 25, would I, you say? Yeah, I love to tell this story on Billy Knowles, and you may have heard it before. Billy was doing an interview for some for something and the commentator said billy you know you're born and raised here and you grew up and you've been guiding for for quite a while he said when you first started guiding billy he said how many good guides were there and billy kind of did his billy thing and goes so well son he said there was probably at the most five or six and the commentator said, well, Billy, you know, it's 25 years later or whatever it was. He said, how many good guys do you think there are today, Billy? And Billy went, well, five or six. <laughs> <laughs> does that sound like Billy? It does sound. Son. Son. I miss him so much. He was a good guy. When's the last time you went fishing in Florida Bay, Eddie? I don't go fishing in Florida Bay anymore. I can't remember. Back when I was guiding, I quit Nowadays, Carol and I don't even put a rod in the boat. We love to go back and take a couple cold beers and run through the backcountry and just enjoy the scenery and don't worry about fishing. So 30 years ago? Oh, no, no, no. 10 years ago when I quit guiding. But it's just, it's too much work anymore. I mean, yeah, I like to go out and have a reasonable idea that I'm going to catch something. Right. <laughs> Is it impressive to you to see Steve Huff still pushing at like 73, 74, fishing from yeah. dark to dark? It's crazy. It is, but that's Steve. Yeah. He'll do that probably till he can't do it anymore. But if you will remember, Steve got to the same point that I was when I quit, but right. I didn't leave. He got there earlier than I, much sooner than I remember. He left Marathon, sold his house, everything, and moved to Chokoloski in Everglades City to get away from everybody. Remember? You're right. He went to find, he found, he said, I asked him once, what do you like the Everglades? He said, because there's a lot of fish and, and, and a no, lot of fish, mosquitoes, and no people. And no people. And that's why I remember yeah. I said, man, you're crazy. You're going to go over there in that damn mosquito infested swamp. And he said, yeah, but there's no people. Yeah. No boats. He said, he said that all these new hotshot guides and all these people and all these boats, he said, 
It's driving me crazy. He said, it just gets me too angry. I got to get away from it. Yeah. And he did. He well, moved out. Found a new place to find fish. Yep. But, you know, he took on a different challenge. He got into the snook and redfish and, sure. and getting up in the mangroves. And, you know, I've never been with Steve, but they people I know that fish with him say that he's awesome. He'll you know, fish till black dark and run in with no GPS through these creeks wide open and scare the shit out of you. And, right, with his glasses knows, on. But he knows where he is. Right. Unbelievable. He's, yeah. a, he's you know, did, did I've he, been doing this for a long time, but I think if you took the scope of what Steve Huck knows over the geography he knows, I consider him to be the best fishing guide ever. My, I did pretty well, but I was in a small geographic area. He could go from Naples to Tortugas. Did he inspire all of you at that time, or did that inspiration come later? I started before Steve. Well, what I'm talking is about at what point did all of a sudden you start finding this this great respect as possibly the greatest guide ever? Was there a point uh, where all of a sudden no, you... No, there was no point. It was just a, a growth. Evolution. Yeah. Just because, maybe because he and I think alike and, and ran our businesses the same way. Right. We weren't part of the flock. And... It's funny, Steve and I used to, because we thought a lot alike, we'd take off in a tar in a bonefish tournament in the morning, pitch black dark. Like, <laughs> and I'd say, well, you know, I'm going to run up to the cross bank and see. And I'd get there and Steve would be sitting right where I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go, ha, 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 beat you again. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Yeah. Anything that you would like to add to this conversation? I think that pretty well covers it other than... You know, my passion today is to try to do what little bit I can and with the means I have to help preserve what we have left and particularly, you know, the, the Everglades and the watershed and the nearshore waters. And, 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 and I think that, you know, I can't do anything much individually, but I can contribute some money to as many organizations that can, and that's what I do. What would you say to the young guides and anglers that, are in the game today to help do what they're supposed to do as far as their footprint for in the world of conservation? Uh, I don't know how to answer that. So what I say... Because I don't see... Obviously, because I'm so long out of the business, I don't know who any of these young guys are. Yeah. And I don't know how they operate and... It seems to me like the ones that I do know, and they're more they're more interested in how many hits they get on their website than they are anything else. But that's not fair at all, right? For sure. Well, I've been asked that. I was asked that question a couple of days ago, and I said the only thing that that I know what I can do. We can think like with BTT. We think globally, but act locally. Correct. And what BTT has done is really fascinating. Uh, with the Caribbean Rim, the Bahamas, they've established six state parks. They just got the Western Dry Rock shut down. All I know is where I don't want to fish, where the fish are really in their sensitive state. Maybe Bahia Honda Bridge at the Worm Hash. You got 60 boats on top of these fish. You take a look at Boca Grande over there. Um, anglers are, are hooking 11 tarpon and losing six of them to sharks. So what I'm saying here to people who may be listening, maybe even freshwater fishing uh, or fishermen, fishing over spawning, you know, um, rainbow trout, stay away from these sensitive places because these fish need to do what they need to do to pro, you know, procreate. 
And for some reason, these fish, these big, massive tarpon, need to eat worms, whether it be the protein for the spawn, because it's the full moon, and right after these worm hatches, they go offshore and spawn. Nikki and I are really trying to like think where we should really be ethical and, and try to be conscious. And that's all I have to say about about that statement well, you know but still i can comment a little bit on that that's that's you've arrived there in the process of evolution over a lot of years and mm -hmm. you've seen the de decline in the resource and you gotta like you said you gotta you gotta think beyond just going where most of the fish are and you gotta think about what about the fish five years from now ten years from now and you I mean logically you would think well, you know, in the old days, when all the commercial fishermen, everybody would go when the spawns, that's when you went fishing because mm -hmm. you could catch them easily. Yeah. And the commercial fishermen, that's when they'd slaughter them. You know, the the mutton snapper and everything done off of Key West. And that's why they had to close the dry rocks because they were getting so depleted, places like that. And you, I think the main thing that I would say is, what can you do? Do whatever you can to change the thinking. Because right. it all revolves around the thinking. You got to change the thinking. And you change the thinking to preserving instead of hanging it on a nail and beating yourself on the chest. And you know, back in the, you remember back in the old days off of Key West, they were they measured a good day by how many pounds they sold. Right. Not what a great day they had. Oh, mm -hmm. and you had these people coming out of Miami running their restaurants on their supposedly on their fun boat. So if you, and that's, I mean, you remember, you've been around long enough where the catch and release today has become the way to fish, other than meat fishing, of course. But, I mean, people, people today wouldn't, you know, they, they honor the catch and release because they understand it. But that came over an elevation of probably since the beginning of the the Hawley tournaments. And sure. Like, that's, what, 30-some years? Right. That didn't happen overnight. But Here's the more people you get involved and the more people you change the thinking to, the faster it will progress. It'll progress. Here's one of the things that really bothers me is, you know, when up in you know, Palm Beach area, you see these boats going offshore dolphin fishing. Why do they have to come in? I mean, why is the limit like nine fish per person? They come back with 30, 40, 50 dolphin. It's 10 fish per person. It's yeah. just like, just catch enough that you need for your family. Why, you know, I just feel, I feel terrible that you have, I mean, that's, that's one boat. If everybody does, does that, and then they wonder why there's not a lot of really big dolphin anymore. Because the thinking hasn't gotten there yet. And, our state doesn't back it up. You know, they, they and I mean, you, why, I, I, I can't understand why the state of Florida has catered to the commercial fishing industry forever. It lets them get away. I remember when we, when, when they, when they were wiping out the redfish and we, the guides association, we, we chartered Greyhound buses and bust everybody to Tallahassee to, to get them to, stop it and we actually got it stopped at that that particular time because the redfish were they were getting slaughtered and they were using the spotter planes and mm -hmm. whatever it took well but they're not you know the state has backed them and I, I mean today i go out with my friend and we go out yellowtail fishing and i go out there and i'm allowed in federal waters i'm allowed to keep 10 yellowtail per person per day 
there's a commercial guy sitting over there. And if he catches 1,500 pounds today, he can keep all 1,500 pounds. Not that he can catch 1,500, but and then he can go out and do it again the next day. I always, I've gotten to the point where I've changed my thinking. I mean, I used to kill everything too. I'm just as guilty as everybody else. But the thinking wasn't there in those days. And there was plenty of resource. The resource has gotten skimmed now. Right. And what's, you know, they, they you go back to the state laws and they say, well, you can do so many, and they put bag limits and so on. But what they don't take in, it goes, that bag limit might stay in, let's just take a round number, five years, 10 years. But the population that's fishing has quadrupled or five times in that same five years. Right. And, the, and the bag limits don't reflect that. So what happens to the fish population? Gets decimated. Right. And, you know, you take the, you, you mentioned the, the mahi or the dolphin. There's hardly, I mean, compare, I grew up down here. There were, there were so many, I mean, you could go out there any day and sink the boat if you wanted to. Right. And now they're lucky to find any little ones, hardly any big ones. And you know why? If you go, I, I can see why, because there's, there's the commercial industry is slaughtering the mahis the worldwide. And they're being caught off these big factory boats, these long line boats, and they're setting like, you know, 30, 40 miles of lines every day. And they're setting them at five levels. They didn't use to fish the surface level. Now they fish for the mahi and they go all the way to the bottom to the whatever they want. And you can go into, I mean, next next time you go into your local supermarket, look in the fish in the in the fish case, you can go into any supermarket, and I've done this in Aspen. In other places, and they've fine. got they got fresh mahi for seven ninety nine a pound. Now, think about how many if you take just the supermarkets in the United States, how many pounds does it take to fill those cases every day? Right. That's a, that's a scary number. The fish can't they can't survive it. It's, it's, no. Do you want to hear something very disrespectful? I don't know. <laughs> you want to hear it? <laughs> I'll just, hear it. Just go with it. <laughs> yeah. Know. Okay. I'm driving up here today to speaking about dolphin and Nikki's going to fly out to Aspen on, on the 10th of June. And I'm going to stick around, you know, till around the 20th. And I, I told Nikki, I said, I think after you leave, I'm going to go offshore and maybe catch a dolphin or something for dinner. And Nikki says, you got no chance of catching a dolphin. He said, you're going to go out there and you can have a big boat. You can have a long lines, a short lines, the outriggers. You're not going to catch anything. That's how bad you are. You're going to go out and you're going to see, a dolphin chasing, or you're going to see a, a frigate bird coming down over some bait and some flying fish, and you're going to go, wow, isn't that a cool bird? <laughs> That's the kind of respect I get from him. Do I speak like that? What kind of accent was that? <laughs> that was hey, you're, terrible. You're, your kids always say stuff you don't want them to say. <laughs> in uh, response. But anyway, but no, no know, response. You just don't have a, you might have a feel in the, in the fly fishing game, but no feel when you go offshore. You go out of the inland, you go, it's, where the hell do I go? <laughs> throw everything, including the kitchen sink in the water and drag Keep it around. Oh, my around. dad can have a thousand pilchards in his life. Well, he won't ca- come back with anything. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> he won't come back there with anything. There we go. See, it's just, That's it's why he catches tarpon, because he's good at it. Yeah. I can't catch anything else. Um, well, Eddie, it's... But, I've heard your name so many times. I've seen your name on trophies, you know, in, in Sandy's shop, and it's just 
your legend just keeps on growing. It's great to meet you. You're sure welcome. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so yeah. much for coming Thank you on very the podcast. Much. I guess a legend means is you used to be pretty good at something, but you're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather Andy, have. Thank you. I'd, I'd, Thank you. Always I'd, good to see you. Like I've always said about that legend thing, you know, to other people, they say, well, I'd, I'd rather be uh, uh, a has-been than, than, than a never was. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I got one that I just came to mind. This was attributed to a guy that was supposed to be the guru of trout fishing in streams. I think it was Pennsylvania or Northeast or something like that. And it said, to, rise, uh, to achieve mastery is to rise above the need to catch fish. I read that and I go, wow, that is really awesome. It doesn't say want, it says need. Right. And I had a plaque made and I put it on my console, on my skip that big. And people would read it and they'd go like, what the hell is that? I hope I don't ever get where I don't want to catch a fish. I said, you didn't read the sign. What do you mean? I said, it doesn't say want, it says need. And the people who need to catch it or they've had a bad day, they don't enjoy the fishing and they don't understand what it's all about. That's why I got out of tournaments. That's why. I but had that's to... what made me. That's what made me. I feel pretty good at it is because I, I wanted to be that guy that could catch a fish on any given day. I wanted to win tournaments. So having that kind of a mindset. I would have never gotten that good or you that good if you didn't want to win that tournament. That's correct. It's a right? process of evolution, what but we talked about earlier. But now here we are. Now we're at a point where we we need that, it, that we've we got that experience. It. Now we need to do what we need, what we can do. And you're in a position with your podcast to do that, to change the thinking and to help elevate the thinking to where we are now and not be stuck for the 30 years that it took us to get there. Right. And um, I think that's possible, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing in numbers. How, how, how do you feel about all that? I mean, here you are 27 going on 28 and here are a bunch of old farts talking about this stuff, you know, need and, and having wisdom now that we don't need it, but we're, we gravitated to a point of, of maybe peace where when I was in the middle of tournaments, I had no peace. What's that old saying? They too soon old and not, and too so too soon. What is it? And not old enough or smart or something. It's an old German song. I forgot what it was. No, but I get too, to get the the gist of yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I'm not there yet, just because I haven't oh. I haven't been doing this as long as you guys have been. Maybe when I'm your age, I'll feel the same way. But the fishing, in my eyes, the fishing is still good. There's a lot of boats on the water, but I've only been doing this for 15 years. So in my short time down here it hasn't changed all that much it's changed a little bit but it's still good enough that it's great i want to be on the water and i want to get you know a couple shots and maybe catch a fish a day if we catch a fish a day that's a great day yeah and you know when i'm you know your age and i've been doing this for 40 years i might feel the same way and i i totally understand how you guys feel but also too the it's become cool the conservation has become cool in the younger generation because guys like you, you know, 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, you know, who look up to you and Steve Huff and Harry Spear and all these legends, you know, are talking about conservation. They're talking about what has changed in their life. And the younger, you know, the younger generation is, is catching on to that. And it's, and it's, they're more aware, I would say. I think that's the right word. They're more aware, they're more conscious, and they want to make a difference in the environment and, and 
their everyday lives. And that's the future. And that's, that's one of the most important things right now. Keep changing the thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It all comes back to what you said. Yeah, sure. You got to keep changing the thinking. You have to promote conservation and that has to become the cool thing. Right. If it becomes the cool thing, then they'll accept it. Exactly but, right. But you know, the old thing, I mean, in the old days, the whole thing was how many fish could you put in the box? Right. And, but, you know, that thinking is, well, it still holds true offshore. But Yeah. Well, anyway. I remember back when when we were allowed to, to uh, sell fish. We, back then, there was, you know, lots of trout in the backcountry. And we had a meeting one time at the Guides Association, and we voluntarily, as an association, agreed to stop selling all fish. And we never sold it, to my knowledge, we never sold a, a member, never sold a fish after that. Because we mandated it that we were we were going to be part of the movement, not, not all of the problem. Right. But I, here, too, I think, you know, in wrapping this up, I, I think that's what's, what's really good about certain associations, like the Lower Keys Guides Association, the Upper Keys Guides Association, tournaments, Captains for Clean Captains Water. Captains for Clean Water. You, you have a group of people that really have a great discussion about uh, about the things and the issues at hand. Um, but like the like the tarpon tournament, you guys all got together and said, we're not going to do this anymore. But without, without, you know, the army that all these groups have, nothing can get done. But like I think with the most important thing, like you're talking about now, getting the younger people thinking and, and and taking a closer look at the bigger picture. Yeah, I, I came to the conclusion. I used to, you know, I, again, we come back. You take the movement to help to save the Everglades and the captains of clean water and all the rest of them. That came because of the crisis, the algae crisis. Right. It didn't come without it. And when you have a crisis like that, it mobilized the armies. And, the, and I decided that instead of giving to a $1,000 to one, I would give five hundred dollars to ten of them. Right, that's that what way, I do as because well. Because I'm the, the president of a, this homeowners association. We have seventy members, and I started three months ago. I started sending all the stuff from Captains of Clean Water and Everglades Society and, and those to our members and encouraging them all to join and encouraging them there. And I reached seventy people, seventy different families that way, and whatever their ripple effect is, I made them aware because a lot of these people are doctors and lawyers and they can industries and they, they don't really know. Right. But if I can put it in front of them and they can see that these organizations are doing a good job, and I stress all the time, it's not so much the dollars, it's the numbers. They need lots of votes. And in order to be voting, you have to be a member. And the more members you got, the more Tallahassee listens. Right. Change your thinking. I like it. Well, thank you. It's thank a great you so much, Eddie. I'm glad, I, up on. glad I threw that out. One more time, buddy. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank great you, to meet you, you, Eddie. Don't stop fishing. <laughs> Good fun. For decades, Whiteman's name was spoken with the utmost respect as a dedicated, hardworking, successful fisherman. We hope you enjoyed the story of a man who saw flats fishing in the Keys during its infancy and helped inspire the next generation of guides who still hold him in the highest of regard. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts 
And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.